0: And we are live.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that picked up or not, but that is me opening a cold one.
0: All right, everybody. Welcome to the next episode of the Legitimus Podcast. And hopefully everybody heard Roy's intro there to get us started here on this next episode. Um, today... It's going to be myself, Mike Miller, and Roy. We have lost a teammate already. Chris Killinger will not be with us. We kicked him out of the group. Uh, we said we couldn't really handle what he was doing or what he wasn't bringing.
1: Out of here, sucker.
0: So we booted him out. He will no longer be with us. Uh, that, is a, that is a blatant lie. He has a bunch of stuff going on. Obviously, if you guys have been listening, he has uh, work and in home and house stuff. So he's working like a madman taking care of stuff. So he's not gonna be able to join us. So myself and Roy are gonna we're gonna soldier on here and we're gonna try and take care of business. So what do we got well, going on down in the south today, Roy?
1: Well um so just uh if you guys have been following the uh Instagram feed you know that uh yesterday I was working on a little cruiser. So this this story is interesting, um, and I shared it with Chris a little bit, and you and I talked a little bit about it. But the conversation, I think, was so good that we just went ahead and decided that we needed to do a whole podcast kind of about all this stuff that's kind of going on. So this cruiser, I've got several cruisers on my rack. I don't know, um, half dozen or so. And yesterday I was just kind of fucking around and I looked at one and it was all covered in rust. And I thought, well, I want to do, cause normally I don't get to work on stuff that I want to work on necessarily. It's always these custom orders. So whenever there is a gap, I just pick something that, that I want to work on and make it the way that I want to make it. And if it sells, it sells. And if it doesn't, well, then I got a cool axe. Um, so I got, I picked this old rusty head up. Just covered in rust. And the reason that I bought this head, um, it looked like a cruiser, had a small eye, had ridges in the eye. And so for two things. I always buy every cruiser that I see. And second, if it has ridges in the eye, I'll buy that as an unmarked head. Because chances are it's going to be a true temper. Now, I know that other manufacturers put ridges in the eyes, but as a general rule, I think it's pretty safe to assume that if it does have ridges, it is a true temper. Would you agree with that?
0: Yeah, 100%. I mean, they were the ones that started that, and then the other manufacturers followed, and they, to to what I have seen and what I know and what I've read, the other manufacturers did not do it in any kind of capacity close to what Kelly or True Temper did. So I think that you're spot on. If you see that, you're pretty certain that it's going to be, you know, Kelly or True Temper to your point.
1: It's a good assumption to go off of. Um, and I know that uh, throughout the years, they had different um, patterns. Some of them <clears> have. <throat> two ridges opposing each other. Some of them have three ridges on one side, two on the other. Um, some of them have three and three, I believe. And I right. don't know, I don't know the timeline of where all those specifics fit in. All I know is that if I'm rolling the dice and if I see ridges in a, in an eye, whether it's a single bit or a double bit or a cruiser or anything, my money is on, A true temper, Kelly, whatever you want to call it. Um, so whenever I was at a junk store several months ago, um, again, I saw a rusty cruiser, what appeared to be a cruiser. I buy every cruiser that I see because cruisers are fucking awesome. And I bought it, put it on my rack. It's rusty. Fast forward to yesterday. I wanted to work on a cruiser. I pick it up. It's full of rust. First thing I do is take it over to my giant wire wheel to clean it all off and I'm cleaning it and right on the, uh, on the right side into the cheeks, there was a bluegrass stamp on it. I know we talked last week. I was like, fuck bluegrass. I'm over it. (laughs) But so I got, I got excited because it's a, I was like, Oh my God, it's a bluegrass cruiser. And then I flip it over. I start cleaning it all off. And The money shot showed up. It's actually stamped 2-2 on the back of it. So having a cruiser stamped 2-2 with nothing else on it is awesome. Having a cruiser stamped 2-2 with a manufacturer stamp on it is even better. Um, And the fact that it's a 2-2 cruiser made by Bluegrass, it's pretty uncommon. I don't want to say rare. I don't really like saying rare. And whenever I say uncommon, I've never seen one. And here's the interesting thing. So I'm talking to my buddy Brent Freebie. Uh, I said, I need to, I need to do some, I need to do some digging on this. So what, what do I do? I go into uncle Google, type in bluegrass cruiser and what the fuck pops up operator 1975 from 2012 and a thread from Bladeforms talking about how rare a bluegrass cruiser is. So I inadvertently bought something I didn't know was, I'll say, valuable. I didn't know that it was valuable. I thought it was a good quality head, and I had a bit of good luck yesterday. So I was super, super excited.
0: Uh, that's what that's all about. And, you know, a lot of guys, <clears throat> excuse me, will definitely appreciate that because you're out and about, you find that axe wherever it is covered in rust. You bring it back to home base, you get that thing all cleaned up and then what's hiding underneath. There's always, always a story usually to some point. Now your story, that's, uh, that's above and beyond because that would actually be the, the second one that we were talking about.
1: Right, right, right that
0: has sort of come to light that we've seen. Um, I've never actually had my hands on one that I can remember. Um, I know that I don't have one. And, you know, you sent me the thing about the the comments on the other one back in 2012. So now seven years ago since the next one that has popped up and has uh, been able to grace our presence. So that's really cool. Uh, Who knows how many of those that were made Obviously not a lie because we haven't seen any of them, so that's that's a really cool find. Do you remember whenever you looked in there, what was the the ridge pattern? Anyhow, do you remember what it was?
1: I've got the axe right here in front of me. Hang on one second. Let me grab it. Such an amazing job of hanging this axe! I can't even see the ridges in here. <laughs> I think it was a two uh, two by two on either side. Um, yeah, two by two, pretty sure. So I just pulled up while we're talking. Um, I got on Google and I found the thread actually. And I wanted ah no. First all. Um, I wanted to see oh it wasn't on blade. God damn it, why is it going to images? I wanted to see it um it is on blade form and I wanted to see um excuse me who originally posted this and it's some dude if you're out there listening R-W-N-2000. Um, he's the one that says, I picked up this bluegrass double bit, and the thread goes on. I think this is a cruiser size axe. Please let me know if that's the case. Someone pipes in. Looks like a cruiser to me. Darn nice one. And then Operator1975 swoops in. A Belknap cruiser of all things. Jesus it's gonna, uh, this person's gonna go nuts. Nice, fine, well done. Post the dimensions on the axe head and certify that it's a cruiser. 2012, Mike Miller is already fucking telling people to certify <laughs> the axes. Um, eight and a quarter edge, blah, 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 they go into dimensions, whatever. But it's interesting. This goes back to episode number one. Whenever, You are in doubt and you go to the interweb and you type in something. There's a very, very good chance that Mike Miller has already answered the question. So to all those guys out there, they're like, why does Mike Miller get upset whenever I ask him a question? That's fucking why he answered the goddamn question seven freaking years ago. So (laughs) maybe don't bother him with questions. Go out and do a search on your own. Google is a fantastic search engine. Who knew? So there you go.
0: It is. But the, you're, we're always going to get those questions about the cruisers because there they are a little bit of an oddity, even though overall they're still somewhat popular, you know, between all the manufacturers. But then the specifics as far as what makes a cruiser a cruiser if you don't have, you know, the 2-2 stamp on it or if it doesn't quite match up to that approximate 8-inch length. Oh, well, it wasn't on a 28 inch handle, so it can't be a cruiser. Well, that's not necessarily true either. So, right. there's always, um, you know, going to be <laughs> some different, uh, some different specs, some technicalities, things like that. So, uh, most well, guys I, will always go with the eye size, which is usually pretty, pretty true.
1: And, and that, uh, that's the thing that mm-hmm. you need to, um, be most concerned with because, you know, think about a freaking axe. Let's just say a, a, a Kelly Vulcan that was made in the 1920s or whatever, or, or the 50s. It doesn't matter whenever they were produced. Um, that, that axe has been ground down and ground down and ground down so much so that it looks like a cruiser and it will be posted as a cruiser. But you flip it over and you look at the eye and it's the, the eye width from, from the small point to the small point is three inches, three and a quarter. that is not a cruiser at all. That's a double bit that's been ground the fuck down over a hundred years.
0: Yeah. And those are actually really popular, you know, with, uh, a lot of the auction sites, obviously things like that. Those ones that have been used and abused and maybe improperly sharpened or they got onto the grinder and they really shouldn't have. And, oh my gosh, Hey, look at this. I got myself a cruiser. Well, no, you don't. You got a, you got a three and a half that just really got worn down.
1: Right. Exactly. Um, so a guy, I don't know, it was about a year ago, um, Brandon from Whiskey River turned me on and someone. Hey, um, I got a lead on a Black Raven cruiser. And I was like, yes, please send me the info. And the guy sends me pictures and everything about it's all wrong, except how wide it is. Right. It's been ground the fuck down. And he sh- he shows me pictures of everything on it. It's got a really wide eye on it. Then on the back side, it, it's stamped three two. I was like, dude, this is this is not a cruiser. This is just a ground down black raven double bit. And I know that I pissed the guy off, but whatever. It's just one of those things. You can't convince someone that you know they think they're an expert on something because they saw it on eBay. Um, and speaking of eBay, God. People, people on there miss. Are you scrolling your mouse? I can hear it clickety do. I was, yeah, I was looking at the, the 2012 post. <laughs> Going down memory lane. Uh, yes, that's when I was uh, operator 1975. Mm, good days, good days. <laughs> but uh, you know, you go on a, go on on eBay and like probably okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a question. So, what do you think the most mislabeled pattern is on eBay? Go. Uh,
0: Cruiser and Rockaway.
1: Exactly! Rockaway! It's a round lug freaking jersey. It's not a goddamn Rockaway. And it's a plum Rockaway, of all things, right? No! No! I saw someone list a freaking, uh... A jersey or a Dayton they and they they called it a jersey pattern. And normally I'm just like, this guy's an idiot, but it was so far wrong that I had to send the guy a message. Like, dude, you have no idea what you're talking about. This is a Dayton. It's not a jersey. Anyway, eBay's dead. Fuck eBay. <laughs>
0: So a lot of that, though, because what you bring up is a really good point, and it comes up time and time again, what is a Rockaway, what is not a Rockaway, and you'll have guys in both camps, which I think is actually really cool because it's based off of what you've seen, what you've learned, who you've talked to. Now, the the culprit in all this is Plum. Right. Because Plum tried to basically resurrect the Rockaway and tried to really – uh Take that pattern with maybe a little bit of the historical context and guys that maybe remembered that. And then they were trying to shy away from the jersey market, which was pretty good. And they were trying to get something and said, Hey, this is an axe that's different from what you have seen, what you're used to, or maybe what you're looking for. This is a rockaway.
1: Look at right. this guy.
0: Look at this big, pretty round lugs that come down and sweep down in the handle. Oh, and you're going to get so much more surface contact on the handle. Sure, sure, sure. Oh, and then look at this big, nice, fat, you know, uh, blade that in the bit that's going to be on that from toe to heel and all. Oh, it's just so pretty. They're the ones that actually ruined the whole entire thing. And, you know, so a lot of the blame has to be on that with them because that can get confusing. If, if you're new to the game, you don't know really what you're looking at or what you're talking about, and you're out there and you're looking, you look up that plum catalog from 1954, and there they are. They're in there. It's technically not... The original Rockaway and it is a it is a point of discussion, especially with some of the collectors. So were I they don't.
1: were they advertising it as a Rockaway?
0: Yes. But yes. But it was not. It was a rounded lug jersey.
1: So they even I didn't know that they called it a, a, a Rockaway because I know that there are a few Rockaway, I've seen a few Rockaway, like true Rockaway pattern plumes. And the difference for the guys that don't know what it is, it's the pole height. They're they're really they're really shallow, and the the, the bottom Sweet. edge sweeps. Right. So the jersey has a as a steep angle from the lugs down to the heel, where the rockaway has this big sweeping <coughs> angle. Let me let me put these uh, headphones down for a second. I want to show you something, and I want to get your opinion. Let's take two seconds. Hang on.
0: So what Roy is talking about then, whenever that comes down, that big sweep on the rockaway is going to be actually a curved sweep then coming from the cheek down to the heel. Where then on your typical jersey, that's a straight line. That's basically almost like a 45-degree angle coming down there. That's usually your first distinct characteristic if you're going to be like, all right, is this a jersey or is this a rockaway? And that's what most guys will look at first. Now Roy brings up a second point about – The pole and not a lot of guys know that either is that on your typical original rockaways, like if you look at the McKinnon's and some of the other ones then that came out, that pole is shorter from top to bottom. Your jersey usually has a gigantic pole on it. Yep. Where your rockaways is, they're probably going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of two thirds, maybe three quarters of the length.
1: Yeah. That's,
0: that's what he's going, going over there.
1: All right, so check this out, i got to do a big shout-out to my buddy Byron from Broad River Knives because he posted this freaking axe on Instagram several months ago, and then he came to Blade Show, saw me at my table, and he surprised me with this, all right? So I want your take on this axe, and we'll post this to the Instagram account so that everyone can see it. Look at that. It's a plum. Mhm. It's it's you. never can. Can you see the square right there? Oh yeah,
0: yep, I got gotcha. you.
1: So it's a plum. It's easily five pounds. It's a monster. But I would classify this as a round lug Kentucky. Yes.
0: I have that same max. Six pounds.
1: You got it's it's
0: six. Yes. Yeah, it says plum six on it. It's on the plum wall. Yours is huge, I can tell just by looking at it. It's all five pounds, if not bigger. Yeah. It
1: looks like there's a faint five above the uh above the box. Yeah. But that could nah, I don't know. I I've I I kind of flip it over and the light shines and I don't know, I'd have to put it on a scale and I don't have one right in front of me and I don't want to go get one. But um what, a, like, good God, what a freaking cool head. And, of course, Mike Miller's got one. It's on the plumb wall, no big deal. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I know that this conversation started about uh, cruisers, but it, it has led us into this big fucking quagmire of patterns. And... I don't know if you want to talk about, let's just talk about patterns. Let's just get this out there because um, you have to know what you're looking for. And some patterns have more value than other patterns. Some patterns are more desirable. Some patterns are just flat out cooler than others. So the two most common patterns that you will ever, ever find in any part of the country, whether you, it doesn't matter where you are, is the Michigan and the Dayton pattern. Would you agree with that?
0: Correct. I would wholeheartedly
1: agree with that. So even when I was living in Idaho and Spokane, I would find Michigan patterns 80% of the time. And would you like to allude to why there are so many Michigan patterns, Mike Mullen? Uh,
0: From what I've read and what I've been told is that Michigan, if you're looking at how the country progressed, obviously from East Coast to West Coast, and the axe industry and how it – You know, we talked about the golden age. I know I'm a big proponent of the golden age of when the heyday of the axe industry was. Michigan was pretty much the last holdout for what could be considered, I guess, maybe East Coast, even though it's not. Right. So I'm not saying Michigan's East Coast, but let's just put things into perspective. So Michigan was sort of like the last stand for timber, big timber that was getting harvested. And so... Where were most of the axes going at that time? Whenever things started to dwindle down from just a mass production standpoint, you were going to Michigan. What pattern came out of Michigan? The Michigan pattern. (laughs) So as as things then went by, and again, Michigan being sort of the last stronghold of the East Coast, and we're not talking about the Pacific Northwest, that's a different beast, the majority then of the axes that were being produced had to go – and sort of represent that area. And those axes fit all over. Okay, It's not like a Michigan axe doesn't hold water in Ohio or Pennsylvania or anywhere else. But that was sort of like the last stand, and that's where the the focus of the manufacturing went. And that's why you see an absolute ton of those. You're looking at flea markets, eBay, antique stores. That's why you're going to see that pattern all over the place.
1: And and I, I don't know who I heard this from. It might have even been you. Um, but just from an economical standpoint, later on past the golden era of axes, um, was it you that said that, um, it was just easier to manufacture also as opposed to a, a Jersey or a Kentucky or a, uh, a, a Connecticut or, or something along those lines? Was that you that was telling me that or not?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's when we were all, you, me, and Keller were sitting in the hotel room that night having a little (laughs) drunk, having a little talk. So what you see there is when the majority of those patterns all come out, or I should say when the majority sort of shifted towards Michigan was post World War II. So you had the way that I always looked at it, you had pre 1920 Mm -hmm. and there was all kinds of patterns from all over the place. Right. You had local blacksmiths, you had all the little ax manufacturers, like I sort of think of like Spiller, some of the mm-hmm. Northeast guys, um,
1: Emerson,
0: exactly. 1920 right. hits, and the industry says, "Listen, we're going to condense this down to about 2021 20, patterns." Sure. Right. World War II hits. The age of the axe is pretty much dead. The chainsaw is gaining ground. They say, "Listen, we're going to take 2021. 20, we're going to cut this down to about six to eight patterns."
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And out of those six to eight, number one was going to be Michigan. Number two was going to be Dayton. And then they went from there. So if you look at the Michigan pattern itself, like let's just say if you look at a three-and-a-half, four-pound single bit, not very complex, not no. a lot going on there. You can make that thing, especially then after World War II with the new, uh you know, industrial revolution and the stamping technology, things like that. You could pound those out all day long. You didn't yeah. have to, you know, the, the dyes weren't there and stuff. You could do that. You didn't have to worry about a Kentucky. You didn't have to worry about, oh, is it a uh, this kind of Connecticut? Is it this kind of Jersey? Is it, you know, right, right, your, right. your average Joe could get by with a Michigan single bit four pound axe and pretty much do whatever he needed to do from there on. And so those are the factors that led to that pattern just really taking over the landscape.
1: And whenever you look at them, Um, it's kind of twofold for me. One, I see a bazillion of them, so I don't get excited about them. And two, they don't have sexy lines, so I don't get excited about them either. Now, are they great axes, and do I buy them whenever I see them? Yeah, of course. But do I get excited over a, a Connecticut more so than a Michigan? Yeah. Connecticut's a beautiful, I mean, just looking at it, it's a beautiful axe. Um, I happen to love Kentucky jerseys because I'm from Kentucky and because I'm not from Kentucky. I need to, I need to clarify that. I live in Kentucky. I'm not from this freaking state. Um, (laughs) but whenever you look at it, the Kentucky jersey, and I, and I, uh, just lazily and, Probably ignorantly lump everything that's not a Baltimore jersey into a Kentucky jersey. (laughs) I know that there's like a Carolina jersey, a Georgia jersey, there's a turpentine, well turpentine's a little bit different, but for the most part, you're just really talking about that angle from the lugs down to the heel. And is it more or less shallow? That's gonna, that's gonna determine whether it's a Kentucky, a Carolina, or a Georgia jersey, and I just lump all those into one. And the reason that I like those so much is because they're a little bit harder to find, and they got a little bit that the that angle is shallower. They just have a really, really sexy line that just that I just love them. They look cooler than the standard jersey. Now, do I love a Kelly Perfect beveled jersey? Fuck yes, I do. But a a beveled jersey in a Kentucky pattern? Oh, my God. They're just, I just love them. Love them, love them, love them. And
0: they're probably not that common overall because, again, those particular manufacturers were trying to satisfy a need for a particular area of the country. Yeah. like, you know, if you look again back in the heyday, imagine trying to take a Kentucky jersey sure. and maybe showing that to a guy in Michigan. Yeah. Like, what is this? This is dumb. Get it out of here. <laughs> Same thing. If you show that Michigan to the guy down in Kentucky or maybe in one of the other southern states, and be like, this, this axe is dumb. Get this out of here. Like, what are you going to do with this? You know, like look at this rounded pole. Like, what do I want to do with that? Like, get, yeah. get this out of here. So. That's always been one of the things that's been really interesting to me is that you had all these patterns with their different subsets. And really, if you do the history and if you walk it all the way back, those all came originally from the different blacksmiths that were in those particular areas that originally made that pattern. And they made those patterns based off of the feedback that they got from the guys that were in the field. Like, right, hey, that's, right. this is what I'm looking for. I need... You know, I'm looking for toe to heel of this and I'm looking for a pole of this to balance it out this side or the other. And that's where those all came from. And you can follow that then all the way up through history with all the different patterns. And like you take a look at the cedar pattern and how that originated. Okay. Look at that. That was very localized. Um, and that has just always really fascinated me with they, they took that knowledge. They went with it. The bigger companies got it. They ran with it just like you see today mm-hmm. with different aspects of technology and stuff like that. They were doing the same thing a hundred years ago with axes sure. and, and they went with it. And that just blows my mind.
1: Down in, when we were down in North Carolina, what two weeks ago now, um, Rooster actually did a little, a talk about different patterns and everything. And of course the cedar pattern got brought up. And for those guys that don't know what the cedar pattern is, um, whenever you look at it, it, it doesn't look like any other axe that's out there. Um, it's made for a very specific job for a very specific region, um, and that's what makes that's what makes it cool and unique and more valuable. Like all those things. Turn into value. Right. If you don't have something that's common, you, you have something that's very specific. You have something that's very regional. Well, they don't produce very many of them. So they then consequently they become rare. And then if anything is rare, they become more valuable. So the cedar pattern I think is awesome. I love I don't have. The plum, what is it called? El Cedro. What? What, what are they, What's What's the stamp that's on there? Uh, it's El Cedro Plum Cedar Axe. And there are two. I, I believe there are two stamps on that. Is that correct?
0: Uh, there are two different stamps. They're very similar, but there are two different stamps. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yep.
0: There's like a plain Jane one, and then there's the other one with like the with the tree. The oval, on it. Yeah, the oval on the tree, and it's a little bit more intricate. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So uh side note, earlier this year, um one of my followers sends me a direct message and says, Hey, I'm at a yard sale and this is fifteen bucks. Snapshot, it's a fucking plum cedar axe, uh, El Cedro, uh and I was like, I'll buy it. And he goes, Well, it's only fifteen dollars, so I think I want to have you restore it for me and put it on a handle. So, I mean, like it was cool just to have that in my possession for a little bit. Um, I don't have that particular one. Um I've got two cedar patterns. Now I've got one that's actually made by Hartwell. Uh And then I've got another unmarked, assuming it's a true temper because of the ridges. I just picked that up off a rooster at the uh, Ohio meet a couple weeks ago, a month ago, or whatever. Damn, you're telling me if I would have been at the Ohio meet,
0: I could have got that.
1: Yeah. And and maybe a hand job from someone else. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it was awfully hot and sweaty at night, you know. Um, lot, the beer was flowing, baby. You, <laughs> um, Matthew Justice. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah. So like one of the things, if you look at that cedar axe, a lot of guys love them. And to your point, they're not that common. Now, I don't know what's going on, but there, there's a flurry of them out on eBay right now. Really? Yeah. So I don't know if it's, uh, it's just come to light and this is like the new thing. It's the new it, but like the way that I always took the cedar axe is like, it's sort of, it's sort of the rock way, but it's on steroids. Because if you look at it, because obviously on the top, if we're looking at it from the axe, like straight down, okay. the top will flare up a little yep. bit. You you still have that curve, okay, going down from, like, say, where you would have the lugs or the mm-hmm. bottom of the axe down to the heel. You still have that curve. And then uh, depending on the manufacturer, um, the pole is usually similar to the Rockaway. It's not a big fat pole like a jersey. Mm-hmm. But it's usually just the cheeks and the distance then from toe to heel is obviously just extrapolated out from your traditional Rockaway. And I'm sure it made a hell of a chopper, especially four seater. Right. right. Down down where they originally developed it. And that was the the thing with that. So like if we talk about blacksmith going to you know the major companies that's exactly what happened. You know, the the guys that were in that area say, Hey, listen, this is what we're looking for. This is what we're gonna need and I would really have loved to have been a part of that original conversation. Like, hey, this is what we need and I'm sure it was probably just a couple guys and they probably just sketched it out. They're like, listen, this is what I'm looking for, this is what I need. And you had a local blacksmith made that and it became so popular right. that these that the big boys copied it. Right, right, and, right. You know, I'm you know, I've never actually chopped with one myself, but I'm, but I'm
1: sure. You know, it's it's got to do its job. Obviously, I mean, you have that. that well, the it, the thing that uh, that rooster not to cut you off, but what rooster was saying was it's got all of the head weight, but it's just distributed differently. To your point, it's pushed back from the pole all the way to the cutting edge, where that mass is just flared out. Um, so it just looks really cool. Um, but they were on shorter handles, but it still has the same overall three and a half pound head weight, which is really cool.
0: So, yeah, they basically took that and they said, listen, we're going to put the mass of this all on the cheeks. Yeah. We're going to just put it towards the front in order so that, especially back then, you got to realize, like, I think a lot of guys today, whenever they think about axe work and axe chopping, what you see today is the guys in the Steel Timberport Timber Sports Series, right? And they're going for broke. Like you get these big guys, muscles, and they're they are going a million <laughs> miles an hour. If you look at any of the old logging videos, what do you see? You see guys they're up on those springboards, yeah. they're chopping away, and they're going light and casual because they know that they got to do it for twelve hours. Yeah, and. I think that has something to do, like, whenever we talk about these axe patterns, what lends a hand to being able to be able to do that all day long? Sure. Like you don't want one of those big, huge Tasmanian patterns, right? If You're going to be yeah, able yeah. to do that all day for the wood that we have in North America. And you take a look at, like, that, that cedar pattern, all the guts and everything is in the front. You're swinging that. And you know that you got to do it nice and easy, man. Now you got all that brunt force right in the front. You got that big fat cutting edge. I'm sure that that uh, would be somewhat of a pleasure to be able to work with all day. You put that on that correct handle, nothing sure. too, you know, nothing too fat like what we got today, but a nice handle where then you can whip that, get that head speed, be able to chop that in there. I'm sure that that I, I can see why it's popular. I mean, it would have to work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you know and it goes back to what I was saying before. It's just it's really sexy looking because it's different (laughs) and you don't see very I mean I know it's kinda silly to say an axe is sexy, but um it's got really it's got really cool lines and it's not a Michigan, it's not a Dayton, so it's different, it's unique, and they're just awesome to look at. And to tie it back to the very the the historical the the historical component of this axe was used in a very specific market very specific time to do one job only, and that's it so to me I mean that's just really really cool. I find that fascinating,
0: oh yeah, and that's why guys love it and it is sort of remarkable to be able to see um, just the amount that are out there right now, like I said there are as we talk about here in the first week of August, there are a few out on eBay, which normally you don't see that. Normally, it's one, maybe two. And right. And they vary in condition and stuff like that. There's
1: like six of them out there right now. Six of them? Yeah. Like, what are, what are we talking price-wise?
0: Well, guys know that now. So, again, I don't want to get into you with prices because I know it's a little, <laughs> little touchy. <so> it's <laughs> no, little, but, no, like,
1: no, just, like, so what are they going for, like, on average on eBay right now?
0: Probably looking at about three hundred.
1: Yeah, yeah, that seems about right.
0: So, and that's the single bit ones before you get into the double bit ones that they had. And if you look at that double bit uh, cedar, I mean, they have the huge flared on each end, so almost like a reversible or a swamping, but yet on
1: steroids again. I've never even seen one.
0: Yeah, they made them. They weren't that. Co- they weren't that common um the majority of that i I do not have a double bit no um the majority of them had the big like uh the plant slash flower logo you Mm -hmm. know this was rounded but then the the toe to heel on each end was massive and it was almost like a california slash reversible somewhere Mm -hmm. in that that sort of ballpark but just again on steroids
1: So for the listeners out there that don't know what the toe and the heel are, um, it's just the different parts of the axe. The toe is the top part of the cutting edge. The heel is the bottom point of the cutting edge. The pole is the back. The lugs are the little pointy things that come down over the handle, and the cheeks are in between the cutting edge and kind of like the lug area-ish, just for general reference. As we're talking about this stuff,
0: and we can put a picture of that out on the out on the pack, podcast Instagram, just so that some guys have a little bit of a better idea. There's a, definitely a couple of pictures out there that have uh, that info that are on them and are really good representations, and they will differ from single bit to double bit, uh, mm-hmm. probably even a little bit with the jerseys, obviously with the lugs. Mm-hmm. lugs. So, uh, we'll definitely put that out there so everybody can see what we're talking about. So.
1: So um, well, the uh, the jersey pattern is interesting to me because originally it was called the Baltimore jersey. Like, just that's the standard jersey, right, the Baltimore jersey? I always, to me, that's,
0: I called it a jersey. If if someone said, how would you, like, give it an original name, I don't call it Baltimore. I just call it a fat jersey. Yeah, right. So like the one that I always think about, you had mentioned it earlier, the Kelly Perfect with the bevels. I mean toe to heel, it's massive. And that's to me, that's just a big old fat jersey. Okay. But yeah, to to your point again, then for the sub name or what other people call it, yeah, Baltimore jersey.
1: So the the jersey is So another thing that people need to to realize is that while we're throwing out these terms, you'll notice that there are a lot of uh, geographic references. Michigan, Dayton, Baltimore, Jersey, Kentucky, Jersey, Carolina, Jersey, Georgia, Jersey, Puget Sound, uh, Connecticut, Hudson Bay. I'm forgetting... What's in a, am I forgetting any? Like, what, for patterns? Yeah, patterns, geographic patterns. Oh, California?
0: Uh, there, there's a million of them and you can get as specific
1: or as unspecific as you want. So the Yankee, the Hoosier, Yankee,
0: Hoosier. There's a Long Island pattern that, you know, to me looks very similar to other patterns. Um, the Pennsylvania, the Western, which always didn't make sense to me. There's a Wisconsin, there's a New England.
1: Yeah, uh, and there's like a narrow Wisconsin also. Oh, there's there's a it's Delaware. Just
0: re- I mean it's and that is why in the in the Heyday when
1: Right. Again,
0: when we were in the prime in nineteen twenty, they said, Hey, listen, we're gonna we're gonna cut this down to about twenty of these patterns. And <laughs> the best reference that I've ever seen to that is actually in my one warren catalog which it's around here somewhere but they they took it down to about 20 21 patterns and it's mm-hmm. they still have the geographical names um but a lot of them are just more plain jane um and you can see where like I don't know if the dyes necessarily were interchangeable but if you're talking about production uh cost being able to make a profit you're again as we progress through society your average Joe back then is not going to know the difference between a Long Island and a Dayton. Right. A regular Wisconsin and a Dayton. Uh, You know, again, who would actually take the time to figure out what the difference is between a Jersey and a Rockaway even back in 1920. So I can see why they did it, but yeah, there's, it's, you know, you can get as uh, specific as you want, which is actually pretty crazy.
1: Yeah, and it's also interesting um, that while we especially around here, I, I don't know, I'm a couple of hours from Dayton. Uh, I see a ton of Dayton. I see more Michigans than anything, and it goes back to the conversation earlier. But as you move across the country, you find more of those axes of that geographic name. Um, if you're in Connecticut, I know those boys up there, um, Corey and Ryan and, and those dudes, they find Connecticut's all goddamn day. And I went to this freaking yard sale for two, two days straight. I found three Connecticut's and those three Connecticut's in this area um, are probably the only three Connecticut's that I found all freaking year. Uh, they're, they're just, they just aren't here. You go down to the Southeast. What do you find? Jersey's, Everywhere, so it's fun getting together at these axe meets because, especially like the North Carolina one, you get these these boys from down south. They got tons and tons of jerseys. Well, you got guys like if you went there, we'd have tons and tons of Michigans and Dayton. That's what I have. Brandon, he's got all sorts of shit because he's from Wisconsin. But you get these guys from different regions, and that's they build their collection on kind of what they have access to aside from stupid freaking eBay, but what they find locally. So you get this mix of things that maybe you don't get to see all the time. Like whenever we were up there and up in New York and, uh, and uh, uh, Ryan was showing us his collection, dude, he had more Connecticut legitimate freaking heads in one place than I've ever seen in my whole freaking life. And he was like, this is for sale, this is for sale. But none of the Collins legitimate Connecticut's are for sale. <laughs> of course not. Of course not.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely one of the great things about Axes and you know their history and their story and where they were and to your point where they weren't, right? Right. So you know, you uh, you head up north, you're gonna find the certain ones, you're gonna head down south. It you're gonna find the certain ones. so I was always a little enamored or taken back by whenever you do go south you find a lot of the jerseys or the different Jersey variations like right, right, some right. somehow like I didn't think that that would be but I guess it sort of makes sense um, if you're looking at it from a again where are you what kind of wood are you trying to process obviously a lot more pine in the south. Right. Uh, which is not obviously a hardwood. So if you had that big cutting edge, man, you're going to be able to plow through a pine pretty, pretty quick. Yeah. Uh, so it, I always found that tremendously interesting and just the, the overall regional uh, patterns and the significance and like how the big companies took it and just ran with it and, sure. and just, you know, tried to market it to the best of their ability. So,
1: well, Um, This goes back to what I was saying earlier about the Baltimore Jersey for like whatever reason, whenever I'm thinking of jerseys, I think of the Baltimore Jersey as kind of the the standard Jersey pattern. And if you look at it, Baltimore relatively south compared to, you know, the northeast where all those freaking wedge patterns were coming out of or the Connecticut pattern or whatever. So it makes sense. Based on the trees that they were cutting, based on the region, that that pattern would move south.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. No doubt. And, um,
1: I wonder where, like, do you know where the Jersey pattern originated from, Mr. Operator 1975?
0: So where do you think it originated from? What's his well, name
1: called? Well, I'm, I'm assuming New Jersey, but, um. Yeah.
0: So I'm, there's a couple different stories and a couple different theories that sort of come out with this. Um, so you originally had like, again, back in the day, blacksmith, no big company and stuff like that. You had McKinnon was in right. obviously Jersey, right? Yeah. So you have that the theory is, is that it's sort of offshooted from that, that as the axes came to be in individual blacksmiths, sort of got a hold of that original McKinnon Rockaway pattern, which basically took that bit and, again, from toe to heel and started to elongate that so that you had more of a cutting surface, mm-hmm. that that is then where that jersey originated from. And if you go if you research and if you read – there's a couple of different sort of sub stories with that, but that's why they call it that Jersey pattern because that's where originally that wider toe to heel originated from. So it sort of sparked and, and came yeah.
1: out of there. Yeah. So put it in perspective, because like you know that you you we all run across old blacksmith heads, and it seems that. Almost nine times out of ten, whenever I find them, they are Jersey-ish patterns, right? They've got pointed lugs, right. they got that angle going down to the to the heel. Now, did they call that a Jersey? Probably not. They were just banging something out, correct? And so, to put a time frame on the McKinnon Rockaway, I, I'm not familiar with the da- I, I'm not familiar with the dates on that. Do you know them offhand?
0: Uh, McKinnon, you're looking at probably late 1800s, early 1900s to when right. they were in when they were in their heyday.
1: Right.
0: Um, now that doesn't mean that they were the first ones to necessarily do that, but they, they sort of get the credit with that whole jersey pattern with that elongated toe to heel coming mm-hmm. out of there. Now, in the different catalogs, you'll see you know that jersey pattern in it. Morphed, or it—I it, uh I don't know what do you, it just, just sort of developed itself over the years. But that's sort of like where that originally came from, and then it sort of spread, spread itself east, right? That's why you get uh, now there's a Baltimore one, now there's mm-hmm. a Kentucky one, now there's a Baltimore-Kentucky one, now there's a Georgia one. So like as it made itself more prominent, more popular, guys were able to get their hands on it and um, say, hey, listen, I really like this pattern. That's sort of where that all originated from. But I think probably what you had happened back in the day, if we're looking at it from a historical standpoint, is that as that forest industry was there and you needed that in order to be able to create all the infrastructure in the towns and everything like that, I think that you probably, you just had a big hodgepodge of the blacksmiths that were just trying to keep up with what the demand was and what guys were telling them and probably bringing them and, that's why you had a million different patterns right 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 prior to nineteen twenty right so you probably back then i mean Christ you probably had however many different versions of a jersey that you could get your hands on right this is what uh this guy from Pennsylvania was making this is what this guy from Ohio was making, blah 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 right right right, and then you know then it condensed itself down to those main four or five six variations that we know, but all still originating from the
1: east coast there. Mm hmm. Well, I think it's fascinating. I mean, it's just I, I love the I love the the history behind all of it. Um, obviously, I, um, I know that the jersey came from there, um, but it's just it's interesting to see how over time all that stuff was really dynamic and it was changing based on what the guys needed. And now what we're left with are a whole bunch of really, really cool pieces that today, a hundred years later, well, is this a Kentucky? Is this a, is this a North Carolina? Is this a Georgia? And like, that's what I find interesting about all this act stuff is that here we are a hundred years later, still talking about the shit and no one, I'm sorry to say this, Mike Miller, no one is a definitive expert on any of this stuff. We can speculate. You've got tons and tons of catalogs. You are probably the authority on all this stuff. But at the end of the day, we're just trying to line up the puzzle pieces the best that we can. Um, And I think, I think we're pretty close but there's still a lot of, well, I don't know about this. And it gets – the lines get blurry and blurrier as you progress past World War II into the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Like whenever all those companies became one, two, three companies, the lines get real freaking blurry on, hey, who made this? What pattern is this? When was it made? Ah, it's real freaking tricky, and it's a slippery slope to say that you know what's produced when and who made it. I mean, there are a couple of signs, a couple of things like the ridges in the eyes that can kind of point us and lead us into the right direction. But to say a hundred percent that this company made this, ah, it's hard to do.
0: Oh, it's it is absolutely mind-boggling, and you'll never have. Someone that is going to be the know all tell all definitive expert, blah, blah, blah. Uh, there's just too much out there. There's just too much, uh, variation. There's too much history. There's too much that we don't really know that we're trying to dig through and, and, you know, get through the history and look at old documents and catalogs and stuff like that. And we don't, unfortunately right now, like we don't really have those old timers to be able to pick pick their brains and talk to them anymore and be like, Hey, listen, so tell me, what did you, what did you see? What did you know? What did you do? And now the old timers that we have, like whenever I was up at the Collins plant, the old timer that was there, his grandfather worked at the Collins plant. Right. And he got to tag along with him to go to work a couple of times. And this guy is, you know, 20, 30 years older than me. Sure. And he was a grandson of one of the workers at Collins. So that sort of puts it into perspective when you're trying to put all this together and figure it all out and the research, you know, and he had great stories, which we'll get into at another time. But the, the things that he told me and the stories and the practices and what they did, that's coming from a grandson from one of the guys that worked at the company. And, and so if you're talking about, you know, 1910, 19, you know, that's, we don't have that. And we'll have to dig in. We'll have to continue searching, which I know that's what I'll do. And it's, it's just fascinating because we'll never know it all. We, we, we won't. We'll, we'll continue to try and put it together and speculate and try and figure out what those guys were doing back in the day and how they did it and how they were producing that stuff. And. It's it'll never end, man. It's gonna be nuts.
1: So okay, um, I want to know, in you and I, we like on our little on our little girly group text, we uh top five favorite brands or patterns or axes, just in general. But I I don't want to get into that without Killinger. Um, I want I want to know. Well, two things. One, I want to go get another beer. Um so while I'm doing that, um, I want you to to tell guys who your favorite axe manufacturer is and why.
0: You're gonna make me pick, huh? Well, think about it first. I'll think. pick. I got it. I got it. Go ahead. So uh, a lot of guys ask me this. Uh, I actually posted this today on, on Instagram. Hey, you know, what is your favorite axe or what are your favorite axes? I get a lot of who is um, your favorite uh, manufacturer? What is your favorite pattern? Blah, blah, blah. And so, and I know I said this on one of the, I think it was on the first podcast. I love them all, right? So right. number one, that's a terrible answer. And
1: check so, I mean, this. I, oh, think it, I think it picked it up.
0: <laughs> so really, if I probably had to put all my money into one basket, I would probably, oh man, it's, it's so hard. I would probably go with Warren, I guess. Uh, that's who I've said before. I'll stick with them. I, I really like their axes. I like the story behind them with, uh, how the whole company came to be, which we'll, we'll get into that at another time. Right. Some of the hardships that they had starting up with, uh, Know, trying to get the business going but then one of the things that really lured to me is whenever they were in their heyday they had actual salesmen that were on the ground um, putting in the footwork and they were going to logging camps and actually demoing their axes and they had the whole chemical line and what that was all about and the best acts, but then they also had the bulldog line for the whole lumbering industry as well, being able to provide anything else that they needed, you know, chains, um, the different spikes, all that other stuff that they needed, and they just, they went after that, and they were pretty pretty darn successful, you know, they got some awards and things like that, you know, they were able to take, you know, Warren, Pennsylvania, if you've never been there, is not a huge town, it's not a big sure. town. Um, Did we drive they, past that? We no, we circumvented out around that, but okay. we did not go past it. But they were able to, you know, really have an impact, especially in the Pacific Northwest, you know, the Puget and um that Sauger Chemical line, so I guess if I had to pick one of the manufacturers who was my favorite, I'd probably
1: go with them. So how close is Mike Miller to the Warren plant or where it was? Two hours. So is it fair to say that maybe you like them more just because of proximity? I don't know. I'm two hours from Man though too, so yeah. But if I had to pick one of one of one of those two, I'd go with Warren. Also, um, I don't know. I, I don't give a shit about sports, so maybe axe manufacturers are the the closest thing that I can get to it. And like in terms of, Oh, I'm, I'm close to Kelly. I'm close to the Kelly plant. That's why I like Kelly so much. So if anyone knows, um, anyone follows my Instagram, you know that I'm a Kelly guy. I always say that I'm a Kelly guy. Um, Kelly to me is, I'm, I'm an hour and change away from Louisville. Um, their axes are beautiful, they're super ornate. They they're the guys that put bevels in freaking axes and if you guys know anything about my preference, I'm a, so I always say this, I'm a sucker for bevels. And to see to see those pieces from the late 1800s into the early 1900s, they're just freaking amazing. Um I'm lucky enough to have three Kelly Lowell pieces, and they're all, all three of them are different. And I'm lucky enough to have a Kelly Perfect jersey from the 1800s from the Lowell plant. Um, it's only got an etch on one side. That axe came with several different variations of the etch, uh, on the back side. Uh, it's got the beautiful stand, uh, the beautiful etch of Kelly Perfect, Louisville and whatever. and then on the front side, it's got a whole script of this is the best axe. it cannot be stubbed and yada, yada yada. So there are several variations of it where you can get a head that has an etch on the back side. You can have a head that's etched on both the front and the back. And then you can have a head that's etched on the front and the back that's got an 1890 behind all of the scroll scripture stuff on the front of the axe. Um, they came in various sizes, and they're just beautiful, beautiful axes. And Kelly is my all-time favorite line.
0: Well, those are definitely to your point they're probably the prettiest sexiest if you're looking at that
1: and from that kind of standpoint uh, i, I mean, don't know, i don't know why they put the kelly perfect etch on the backside of the axe and all the scroll stuff on the front of it it seems like they should have reversed that you know
0: yeah that is a good point maybe they were trying to be different At the time, if, you know, again, most guys were right-handed choppers, so they had that, you know, your main etch on the one side so that guys knew where they were. Um, So I don't know. That is a good point,
1: but you do see that. Plum was pretty notorious about that also, stamping on the back side. They did, and I actually have one that was on
0: the other side, which is actually pretty uncommon. It was on a boys' axe. I think I posted it, I don't know, a few months ago. Uh, but just sort of weird. I don't know if that was like a miss mark or something like that, you know, depending on how whoever was running the, the show that day right? And it, and it happened to get out through quality control or maybe they did a run of those. So again, those are those questions where man, I mm-hmm. I'd love to be able to
1: jet back in time, but I don't
0: know if we'll ever ever be able to get the answer.
1: Probably not. Um, and, and the thing that I love about Kelly uh the other thing is the longevity of the company and all the acquisitions and it it and it, it, it's a fucking nightmare in today's terms of well, was this made by Kelly? Was this made by someone else? Is this true temper? Is this pre nineteen thirty? Like there's so many freaking hoops to freaking jump through to actually date something that was made by Kelly or American Fork and Hoe or True Temper. But as a totality, I use Kelly and True Temper kind of synonymously. I know it's wrong. I don't care. Um, but whenever you say, oh, I got a Kelly Perfect jersey, you know, it, like if someone is into axes, they know what that looks like immediately. Um, but if you say, oh, I got a Kelly Perfect Louisville Jersey we you know Kelly perfect Jersey Louisville pattern hopefully people know what that looks like um, and if they don't know go look it up and you will fall in love with the most beautiful axe in my opinion the only opinion that matters ever produced <laughs> it is gorgeous um, not only about the etching but the bevels that are on the axe I talked about it briefly on Episode one or two, I can't remember, but they are so deep and so scalloped that on the, on the one that the very first one that I found, uh, up in Michigan, it's a Michigan pattern. Um, right where they come together, there's a crack on the top and on the bottom of the eye because where they're, where those bevels are, have been forged, that material is so goddamn thin that any sort of work or any sort of twisting or whatever pressure on that axe, if it was stubbed, uh, clearly did not hold up. And as time goes on, those bevels got thinner, or excuse me, thicker and thicker, and they are kind of what, they look completely different today, like the, the 50s, 60s, 70s era than they did Late 1800s, early 1900s.
0: Oh, those bevels that they had on some of the originals—it it almost makes you think, like, how could you even work with that axe? They were yeah. so thin, you know. And uh, I've actually had a conversation with a couple guys about that. And you know, was it more advertising? Was it more um, just a gimmick? I, you know, I don't know. I think if you look at the industry back then, guys weren't swinging axes like, quote-unquote, for the fences back then. It was a job. Hmm. You you had to take that axe. You had to swing that thing for 8, 10, 12 hours a day. Right. Right? So, like, you weren't – you were swinging it, but you weren't, like, again, timber sports. Right? Yeah. So you were looking to put that in there, and you had to do that all day. So, again, you could probably get away then with those thinner bevels that, again, one of my favorite terms in axes, it was there to burst the chip.
1: Right, right, or, oh, right, right.
0: We're, we're going to put these bevels in there, man. They're going to burst that chip. <laughs> and you're talking like late 1800s, maybe early 1900s up to about 1910, thinner bevels. Again, the marketing part of it, which was genius. We're going to help to burst that chip. Those guys were swinging that axe slowly but surely repetitive all day long. Then as, you know, technology increased, now you had, the crosscut saw, which is really the death of the axe, no mm-hmm. one really talks about. We'll talk about that again at another point. But forging processes, I'm sure it probably cost more to be able to make that original 1890 Kelly perfect back then than it did in 1910. And they're like, listen, let's just get a die and let's just stamp it out.
1: Yeah.
0: And, you know, those, I think, was probably, in my estimation, due to that, the different the different time, the different work force and how they actually did things versus then 20 years later versus then another 20 years later. And, you know, now any of the jerseys, like you look at those like late council jerseys, like 70. I mean, that that thing's like swinging a rock. I mean, it's just, it's a beast, (laughs) right? Yeah. But again, it was all about what the market wanted and what the market could bear and who was buying stuff. So why would you – in the '70s, put any effort into an axe. When how many are you going to sell? A couple yeah. thousand, ten thousand. You're not going to sell. Look, you know, as we talked about on the on the earlier podcast, how many millions were sure. coming out a hundred years ago versus in the '70s, you're going to sell. I don't know, fifteen thousand a year. Yeah. So, definitely very interesting to just stop, sort of think about, and take it all in.
1: Well, I can tell you this, I've swung, I've swung beveled jerseys quite a bit and do those bevels burst the chip? Do they keep it from stubbing? Not a fucking chance. (laughs) Do they look awesome and sexy and do they draw someone in? Yeah. Yeah, they do. You know, these freaking, these companies that make fishing lures, they're not catching fish, they're catching people. And these axe guys, man, it's no different. And especially um, World War II era, like, all of those paper labels that were coming out, God, they're, especially by man, oh, my goodness, just scroll through LeMond's catalogs, and it's like you're walking down patriotic history freaking 101. I mean, they're so freaking awesome. They're, like, the Plum Liberty, how fucking awesome is that? And I hate you that you have that freaking axe. Sorry. Um <laughs> it is gorgeous. Um freaking uh well there was there were several with fucking the destroyer with freaking you know uh, the freaking ships on there, freaking lightning bolts, freaking shield of the dreadnought, the the commander with freaking eagles and a f- big shield like there was so much American pride that, um, was just freaking awesome back then, uh, in, in these tools. And, and that's another component that has completely lost. Um, and it's a shame that, that we don't have that type of manufacturing these days. Yeah, sure. There's council still is still around and, um, but nothing on the scale and the, awesomeness of what it was back in the day just so freaking cool i just love just taking those books like i don't even read anything i just look at all the freaking pictures because i'm dumb like that um but they're just so freaking cool no doubt and you can even see
0: it in the progression of time with the paper labels so like if you look at it let's let's say 1900 1910 what did you have on paper labels? You didn't have the patriotic uh, sentiment then, right? What did you have? Easy chopper. Yeah. Cut easy. Uh, all those ones that sort of related to the timber industry and what they had going on and, and how that was going to benefit that guy in what being about, able to use that axe.
1: What about the Kelly Standard, the guy on the freaking horse, like, slaying the dragon? Exactly. <laughs>
0: right? so
1: fucking awesome.
0: And then, as you got like post World War, like you got World War Two, right? So then everything was about liberty, yeah. genuine victory, sure. and you know this is what we're going to do there. Then you got post, and the axe for the most part was dead. So now what do we got to rely on? The commander, right? <laughs> USA Pride, the Plum, the you know uh, all uh, all American by Plum. Right? Mm-hmm. Hey, we're all American. We're made in the USA. You're not buying something from China. You're not buying some slasher, exactly. You're not buying something from Sweden, and like what a lot of us right now, in our age group, you know, yeah. say 30, 40s, forties, fifties, we don't recognize the impact in, that Sweden had on the axe market back then.
1: Yeah, because those
0: guys, they they had the market over in Europe because they were still doing it, and they were like, well, shit, we're gonna send stuff over to America. And they took a dent. You can read it. In my one plum catalog where the district manager talks about it, they were their number one competitor. Really? Uh-huh. That's why they had to adjust everything that they did because of the imports that were coming in and how it was very hard for them to compete.
1: So it's funny, like all these guys today are all up on freaking for nuts or whatever and Holtz's nuts. And, and I don't give a shit about that stuff. Like whenever I first got into access, I was like, oh my God, I got to get a Gransper's. And, and I've had several of them. I've used several of them. Are they better? No. Are they different? Sure. And here's the other thing that people don't freaking realize is that has been around since fucking day number one. Holtz has been around since day one or whatever. I don't know about all the acquisitions and yada, yada, yada. I don't give a shit, but they went through the same period of decline that the freaking states did, and there is a period from the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s where there's just kind of standard, fair, grants for stuff out there that's on par with Kelly Wood Slasher. Um, is it junk? No, it's awesome by today's standards, but whenever you look at it in the totality of the spectrum of axes, yeah, it's kind of the bottom of the barrel, in my opinion.
0: Junk. Junk. Ah! That's... That's when you got... I
1: was you, trying to be fucking nice about that, but yes, it's
0: junk. They all were, really. If you look at it, there. <laughs> it doesn't matter who the manufacturer was. If you look at versus the quality that was in 1900, 1910, 1920, what did you have in the late 70s and 80s? You had the fat-ass handles that was like swinging a softball bat. Right. You had big, fat heads that didn't have any kind of real manufacturing or you know, grinding process to them or whatever.
1: No geometry, no
0: edges, right? Right. And then you had the freaking the sin of the axe industry, which is that big old fat epoxy eye. Right? <laughs> Plum, Plum did it. Plum did it. Grandspurs did it. because oh, yeah. that was easy. And oh my god, what was the number one thing? Well, you take your average Joe. He's going to go buy an axe. He's not going to use it for what that axe was originally intended for. He's he's gonna try and split with it. And what's he gonna do? He's gonna bust his handle out, right? Yeah. So that epoxy made that axe with the handle last longer than what it was actually originally intended for. So it made sense for them to do it. And it was the worst thing. Like now we look back on it, you're like, Are you kidding me? Like that's terrible.
1: What and and if anyone has ever tried to remove a hundred percent of that epoxy out of a oh. handle, it's a oh. fucking nightmare. Oh, it is exactly a fucking terrible. nightmare. It smells. So the ha- oh God, it's awful whenever you drill mm-hmm. it out. Um, so good on Plum for making a handle that won't come loose, but it'll break underneath the freaking the head before it comes out of the eye. Um, oh shit, I forgot where I was going. Um, shit, shit, shit. Oh well, forget it. I forgot. God damn. Uh, I lost it. Shit. Oh well, move on. <laughs> Are you frozen, Mike Miller?
0: No, I'm here. <laughs> I'm here. Um, so I think that we covered a lot of the bases, man. Um, yeah. I and mean, we started in with the, the cruiser, and then just sort of all tumbled down from there. Patterns, history, makers, timeline, everything along those lines. So we definitely covered a lot of bases today and hopefully everybody can uh, definitely get some help and get some info from that. Uh, What else we got? You want to keep rolling or you want to wrap this bad boy up? Where are we
1: on the tape? We are at one 15. You you just sent me a text. One hour. (laughs) <laughs> yeah let's go ahead and cut it there and uh we'll wait for Chris Killinger to get get finished setting up a shop and whatever um just real quickly, I want to kind of kick around the idea with you on here while we're here um kind of a kind of an idea like uh Shit, I was lying in bed thinking, like this is this is how dumb I am. I was lying in bed this morning. I woke up because of freaking animals, and it was like five in the morning. I was thinking we need to do something where it's like, um, <laughs> uh, something sh- sh- shop. So what's going on in the shop? Shop. Fuck me. God dang it. I'm like, I've totally, I think it's the beer. I think it's the, beer. <laughs> I've lost the, tra- I've lost all freaking, all train of thought. Let's You're done. There.
0: I'm, I'm going to have to bring Killer back and I'm going to have to boot you off the show now, I guess. So that's where we'll go. But So a couple things then before we wrap this up with everybody. Uh, hopefully everybody learned a lot. We covered a lot of different topics. Uh, the history part, the different patterns. There's going to be questions that come from this. So please feel free to ask them, reach out to myself, reach out to Roy. Uh, You can do it through the Instagram on the Legitimus podcast, whatever you want to do. Uh, But we will be more than happy to help you guys out because I know that there's going to be some questions coming. That's a good thing. For sure. Second, second thing is, is that we need reviews on the podcast.
1: Yes, we do. whether,
0: Whether it's on Google, iTunes, Podbean, uh, leave your two cents. Say, hey, this is really great. Say, hey, listen, I didn't really miss Killer, so don't bring him back for the next episode. Uh, whatever it is. <laughs> uh, but we need some reviews out there in order to just sort of generate that whole uh, popularity and being able to get the podcast out there to where we want to go. So,
1: Well, more uh, reviews kick it up higher to the top. So if we have more subscribers, more reviews, more everything, it just generates more interest. So, Please leave comments, please leave, please subscribe to all of your, all of your whatever's that you're doing, where you're listening and getting your info. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to us ramble on about freaking axes. And we missed you, Killinger. I hope you had a great butter bath. I will see you later. Done. Cut it. Butter bath. <laughs> Cut it.